All right, uh, good evening, good evening. It's uh, good to have you uh, with us once again, and it may be good morning, good morning, or good afternoon, or good afternoon, wherever you are, uh, but I am, uh, I'm glad that you uh, are joining us on discipleship class, and um, praise God, God is good, amen, and we are excited about the things we're going to be covering uh, together, so um, let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll get right to it. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you, Father, that um, you've always believed the best about us. Um, you've never given up on us. Uh, you've been faithful to us, Father, even when we have not been faithful to you. And we thank you so much for that, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity that is before us now to hear and receive from you, Lord, your word, your wisdom. We acknowledge the Holy Spirit as our teacher. We acknowledge, Father, that your word is living and powerful and that it's alive and active in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, and among those who are attending uh, this class time together. Father, we want to be disciples, not just learn about discipleship. We want to understand these things better so that we can better uh, be who and what you called and created us to be, so that we can be more um, focused, Lord, in, in our efforts uh, to the uh, purposes and callings that you have for each one of our lives. And so as we pray, Lord, tonight over everyone that's a part of this class, I thank you, uh, Lord, also for all the men and women that these men and women will reach and touch and minister to for your glory. Young people, old people, Father, neighbors, uh, people that they run into uh, in, in, the, in the grocery store, Lord, that you are equipping us to be the lights that you created us to be in this world, shining for you and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, I want to put the, uh, the title slide back up uh, for you one more time. It is, uh, uh, let's see here, praise God, I'll get myself uh, oriented. Um, this is class number three, and this will be Introduction to uh, Discipleship, part three. So, in these uh, beginning classes, uh, the, the first set of classes, I'm just trying to give you a, an overview of what the Bible tells us about discipleship. There is a lot of misunderstanding in the body of Christ today about discipleship. A lot of people think it's just, you know, six or eight classes you go to when you get saved to join a church and learn a little bit about church politics, learn a little bit about how to study the Bible, learn a little bit about uh, giving and tithing and baptism and things of that nature. All of those classes are important. I have, I have nothing against those. But to think that that is discipleship or that that's all there is to discipleship is, is a gross misunderstanding. And so we see that Father God has two main thrusts, if you will. Um, and we looked at that last week. He says that he would that uh, all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that people receive salvation and then commit themselves to the discipleship process so that Jesus can literally be reproduced in us. So as we begin, I'll try to be quick in the review, but I do want to go over a few of the things that we have uh, talked about already. And so I'll just put them on the overlay if you're watching the video. Of course, if you're in the room live, you see them on the, on the monitors. But uh, if you're watching by video, I'm just going to leave the graphic overlay uh, on the screen for a minute or two as we go through these. One of the first things we said about understanding discipleship is that discipleship is about discovering and fulfilling your God-given destiny. 
Discipleship is about discovering and fulfilling your God-given destiny. And that's pretty important stuff right there. That, that's high cotton, as, as we may say down here in the southern United States of America. So discipleship is about a lot of things, but perhaps one of the most important for us to understand is that it's about discovering and fulfilling your God-given destiny. Representing, and I know that's not how you spell uh, representing, but I did it that way to emphasize that we are to represent, to present Jesus again, representing Jesus in life and ministry to others is the end goal of discipleship. Representing Jesus in life and ministry to others is the end goal of discipleship. I'm going to come back to you for a moment. Jesus made this statement. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, he talked about this to his disciples in, in John, the 14th chapter. And the plan for Father is, the, the plan of God for your life is for when people see you, for them to see Jesus. And then, of course, when they see Jesus, for them to see the Father. These are very, very important aspects uh, for even the reason why we exist. All right, let me get back over to this. So representing Jesus in life and ministry to others is the end goal of discipleship. Notice life and ministry in the way we live our daily lives. And then we said all effective ministry is an extension of our daily walk with the Lord. We also said the yoke, to the yoke rather is to discipleship what the cross is to our salvation. The yoke is to discipleship what the cross is to our salvation. We've also said discipleship is Father's way of bringing His children to the knowledge of the truth. We become children of God through the new birth. When we receive salvation, we become sons and daughters of God. We become born of God, the offspring of God. But just because someone has been born again, this doesn't mean they have come to the knowledge of God's truth in so many different areas of their lives. It doesn't mean they're not God's children. Amen. It's not. The Bible says to study to show yourself approved, not study to become approved but to study, to bring forth, to reveal the approval that you've already received from, uh, from God. So discipleship is Father's way of bringing His children to the knowledge of the truth. This is one of my favorites. Discipleship is finding out who you became the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. Finding out, so think discovery, finding out who you became the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. Once again, you became something the day you were born again that you were not previously. You became something you were not before. Most of God's people, and it's sad for me to say that, but, but so many of God's people, let's say it that way, that's a little better. So many of God's people know more about the person they were than the person they became. That's why they still live a whole lot like the person they were instead of the person that they became. Then we shifted gears towards the end of last class, and we identified discipleship as an uncommon commitment. Discipleship is an uncommon commitment. We will, in the days ahead, talk about the importance of giving the Lord, giving Jesus, giving God, giving the Holy Spirit, giving God the Father, uh, the place that they deserve in our lives. So when we talk about discipleship being uncommon commitment, we could say it this way. A disciple is someone who has given God place in their lives that others are not yet willing to give. A disciple is someone who has, I've never quite said it that way, I don't think, but a disciple is someone who has given God place in their lives that others have not yet been willing to give. Now, 
I'm going to encourage you, if you just jumped in with us in class number three, to uh, take some time to go back to class number one, class number two. Um, you can access those through um, uh, Vimeo.com, uh, Mark Winslet, my Vimeo channel, Heritage Christian Center, um, or the church website, hccnow.org, hccnow.org. Uh, if you have any troubles or issues with that, uh, please e email me, reach out to me. My email address is mark, M-A-R-K, at hccnow.org, mark at hccnow.org. But last class, we talked about these four levels of commitment. And some explanation is required. I mentioned the previous classes because I'm not going to take the time to go back and re-explain all of this. But we introduced it by reminding you of something Jesus said to the woman at the well. He said that Father is looking for true worshipers, a true worshiper, someone who is, is, is not just a, a, you know, a worshiper in name only or someone who calls himself a, a worshiper. So if, in other words, if there's a difference between a worshiper and a true worshiper, um, <laughs> I want to be a true worshiper. And so Jesus distinguished that when he said uh, that Father is looking for true worshipers. And so these four words that we began to talk about last week are words that are often used interchangeably with one another. Instead of thinking of these four words as all meaning the same thing, I want you to think of them as each representing a different level of commitment. And so those four levels of commitment uh, are what we're going to say is a believer, and I'll explain that briefly, then a follower, then a disciple, and, uh, and then finally, a Christian. So we may say that someone is a believer. We may see that someone is a follower. We may say the same thing about a person, call him a disciple, or someone is a Christian. Yet what we see in Scripture, and, and most importantly in Jesus' life and ministry, the things that he taught us and, and the way he, uh, on occasion, used these words, we, we see something a, a little different. Now, I am a believer. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, I am a follower. I, I want to follow Jesus where he leads me. I want to believe what he said to me and about me. And I want to be a disciple, and I also want to be Christ-like uh, in the way I live my life and in the things that I do for God. When Jesus referred to this word believer, we find that there are those who believed in Jesus, but they were not willing to take that next step and actually inconvenience themselves in any way to hear or learn any more from him. We see that there are those who would actually follow Jesus. I'm talking about literally follow him, go out into a, a countryside where he may be teaching, uh, down by the seashore, you know, where he may be holding a meeting and, and explaining things. So there would be people who would take the time out of their busy schedules to go and, and, and receive what Jesus um, had you know, to give to them. I think sometimes we think that these people were just, you know, sitting around doing nothing, and so they, uh, you know, went down to listen to Jesus teach. Their lives were busy like our lives are busy. There were folks, we, we see on one occasion where the people had went out into, uh, you know, a rural area outside of town. There was no place to buy food out there. I don't know how far out in the quote-unquote country they were, and they'd been out there for days listening to Jesus, having Jesus minister to them. So this is what we mean when we say that someone is a follower. 
And, and from those who had this casual interest in Jesus that I'm using believer, you know, the ditto marks for believer there. From those, we see people made that next step commitment to become a follower, then from a follower to a disciple, and then ultimately um, we see the discipleship process completed where folks are identified for the first time as Christians. Let's go to John chapter 8 and verse number 31 and 32. John 8, 31 and 32. Amen. John 8, 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The King James Version reads a little bit different from this. It's, it's pretty similar. But instead of, if you abide in my word, the King James Version says, if you continue in my word. So abide in the New King James, continue in the King James. So what this, of course, is speaking to is a deeper or greater commitment than this group of people uh, had currently made or were willing to make. We, if you keep reading, we're not going to take the time to do it uh, Right now, in last week's class we did, we see that these folks, when invited to a deeper level of commitment by Jesus, they rebelled against that. They, they were offended at that uh, and turned him down. I mean, they just basically said, you know, no thank you, sir. <laughs> but, but they weren't that polite about it when they did. So think about it. It's not, a, it's, it's, it's not some deep, complex uh, situation here. What's the difference between someone who starts a project and someone who sees a project all the way through to the end? The fundamental difference between someone who, who starts it and someone who starts it and sees it all the way through to the end is commitment. It, it's, it's, it's hanging in there. It, when it, the, the new wears off and the excitement of something new uh, turns into the, the daily grind of, of you know, continuing and abiding and staying with it. So this is such a critical aspect of what it means to be and what it takes to be a disciple. Let's go now to Luke chapter 14, verse 27. Luke chapter 14 and verse number 27. Jesus says it pretty uh, straightforward here, as, as he always says things straightforwardly. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying here is that there's effort required on the individual person's part to be a disciple. There, there is something that a disciple must commit himself or herself to and, and then continue in that in order to qualify as a disciple. I don't want you to think of this, and, and maybe some do, some don't. I don't want you to think of this as, as Jesus like standing there saying, okay, no cross, no disciple, get lost. The essence of discipleship is bearing your cross. So if you refuse the essence of what something is, then, then you can't be that. Another way to think of this is there's, there's no way around this. One of the simplest things, and, and yet one of the most life-changing things that the Lord has taught me here of late, is that the only way to learn to trust Him is to trust Him, and there's no other way. Uh, 
I know that almost sounds like something you need to think about there, and we preached a sermon on that last Sunday. I'm not going to try to re-preach it now. But what the Lord showed me is that so many of His people, and I'm guilty, I'm wanting Him to teach me how to trust Him without me actually putting any trust in Him. Trust doesn't, trust doesn't work that way. The same with discipleship. You, you can't be a discipleship if you're not willing to put forth the effort, make the kind of commitment to continue and abide, praise God, uh, in the Word and, and following uh, you know, the Word of God and what Jesus uh, has for us. So please, don't, don't overthink think this. Bearing your cross simply means the effort and sacrifice you must make to fulfill your God-given purpose and destiny in life. It's that it's, let's see, praise God. Where a lot of people get confused is they think the cross that Jesus bore for them is somehow their cross. That's not accurate. The cross of Jesus, or the cross that Jesus bore for you and me, it represented what he had to do as an individual in order to fulfill his God-given, God-assigned purpose and destiny. Jesus could have never completed his assignment. He could have never fulfilled the reason for which he was here on this earth if he had not taken that cross and carried it outside of Jerusalem and allowed him, laid down his life and allowed himself to be crucified. So when it comes to your cross, my cross, these are the things that are specific and maybe even in some cases unique to you and your purpose and your destiny and your willingness to do those things uh, is going to determine whether or not uh, you are one of Jesus' disciples. Remember, before we go any further, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Remember when Jesus told us that. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It doesn't mean there's no yoke, and it doesn't mean that there's no burden, that there's no weight to carry. You know, we talk about, about people carrying their own weight. Someone who doesn't carry their own weight uh, am I the only one in school? I, I was never a fan of group projects. I, that just was not my thing. And not that I was antisocial. I, I love doing things with groups of people and that sort of, that sort of thing. But, you know, you get, you get a partner. I had a big uh, design project uh, in my senior year at college, and, and we had to have a partner. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like, this is huge, a huge part of my grade. Got to finish it to graduate, all this other stuff. Now, now, thankfully, I had a partner that, you know, was equally committed and in, 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 in these sorts of things. Um, so, you, you know, if you've ever been in a group or a group project where someone didn't pull their weight, well, there is weight for you to pull. There is a yoke for you to wear, that yoke of discipleship. But remember what Jesus said when he invited us into it. He said that it's easy and the burden is light. There is effort compared to Going it alone compared to trying to figure things out without the Lord, uh, that, that's hard. Uh, doing life together with Him, there's still challenges in life, but all of a sudden it puts everything in a completely different light, completely different perspective. So my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but if you're not willing to take the yoke, if you're not willing to take the burden, it's going to prevent you from being a disciple, a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one last thing, don't let the devil deceive you into thinking the cross Jesus bore for you is the one that you have to bear. And I know I mentioned that just a moment ago, but, but I'm saying it this time kind of in a different light. So many times I've heard people say maybe there's some kind of consequence in their life of a bad choice they made when they were younger, and, and they say, well, you know, this is just my cross to bear. 
Um, I've heard people talk about rebellious children as being their cross to bear. You know, parents that have a child in rebellion. Well, that's my cross to bear. I was rebellious when I was a kid, and now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm paying the price for it. You know, this, this kind of mentality. Anything to do with your salvation, anything to do with your forgiveness, your restoration, anything to do with your health and well-being physically, mentally, emotionally, Jesus has already bore all of that for you. He bore your sin and he bore the consequences of your sin and my sin on, on the cross. So don't let the devil trick you into thinking that because you maybe abused your body when you were younger and, and now are dealing with health symptoms, that healing is not for you, that, that this is your cross to bear. I've heard people say that over the years, and, and my friend, this is what, you know, Paul said, I don't set aside the grace. <laughs> I, I don't set aside what Jesus has done for me. And so if you think, you know, you've got to pay for something Jesus has already paid for, the devil is tricking you into thinking that, uh, you've got a, you're bearing the wrong cross, in other words. All right. Now, we've talked about these four levels of commitment, and we've said discipleship is an uncommon commitment. Now, I want us to talk about that fourth one, though, and, and it's, it's the one Christian. Christian. Now, I know, amen, you know, my, my brother, like if you ever eat some food without uh, my older brother, Matthew, you know, if you ever sit down and pop some okra in your mouth before the blessing, he'll kind of kid us about it. And he'll say, hey, 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 you know, we were raised Christian. We, we, we say the blessing around here and that sort of thing. And so you know, we think of someone as being a Christian, as someone who's received salvation, somebody who's born again and a member of the church. Well, I'm, I'm not saying that I have a problem with that, but remember what we explained last class about a worshiper and a true worshiper, a believer who just gives mental assent but doesn't really want to make any kind of commitment to learn or grow or develop or, or take their, their walk with God and the purpose and destiny, uh, the fulfilling of their purpose and destiny uh, any deeper than that. So turn with me to Acts the 11th chapter. Acts chapter 11, and there's something in, in the study of God's Word called the law of first mention. The law of first mention. There are some people, I think, who maybe take the law of first mention to extremes and maybe even to places that God never intended for it to go. But the concept of the law of first mention is that the first time you find something mentioned in the Bible, obviously it's God's, God's word, his word is inspired, so this is God speaking to us through the Holy Spirit, that the first place you find it becomes this standard for you to understand and, and you don't ever want to violate it. You don't ever want to take it out of that original context of, of what it actually um, was when God first revealed it or mentioned it to us. And so here, here's where we have um, the word Christian uh, mentioned first in the scriptures. Okay, so it's Acts chapter 11 and we'll begin at verse number uh, 19, Acts 11 and 19. This is what it says. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now, I want to um, come back and talk for just a moment on this, okay? 
If, you, if you're not familiar with the history here, what, what's going on? Stephen was the first martyr of, of the early church. He uh, was a deacon, but he ministered supernaturally, powerfully, uh, in signs and wonders. Um, not like some of the, the deacons that, you know, smoked out side the church that I was, <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, praise God, amen, I just, some people may watch this and they hear a deacon and they, you know, they think, you know, what in the world, you know, but no, this guy was, was on fire for God so much so that the religious leaders stoned him to death for it, and so when that happened, it spooked, for lack of a better word, it's, it spooked a lot of the, the, the early uh, born again men and women, and so they scattered, well, I compare that to throwing water on a grease fire. And if you know anything about a grease fire, the last thing you want to throw on it is water because the water will cause it to spread. So the people who fled and went looking for safer places because of what happened to Stephen wound up going in all these different places. And then, of course, all the different places that they went, they wound up telling people about Jesus. So what the devil meant to try to stop or, or harm or hinder the church actually backfired on him and um, caused the gospel to, to spread even uh, quicker than it uh, would have otherwise. I believe that's the backfire effect that's happening from this COVID attack that we've seen in our world over the last 18, 19 months. So many churches now are broadcasting on the internet communicating using technology in ways that they never have before in response to a crisis that was meant, I believe, targeted the church to try to stop the church. So we, we see in the same way that we met resistance, overcame resistance, and now the gospel is spreading even further. Okay, so let me get back over here. Notice they went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. So Hellenists are referring to Greeks. Up until this point, the word was only being preached to Jewish men and women. It hadn't yet went to the non-Jew yet, but here we go. They spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with great purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Now, let me stop right here because that, that verse right there is a verse and the phrase in that verse that with great purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. That verse captures what true Bible Discipleship is maybe better than any other verse in the Bible. That with great purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. That with great purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. When he's talking about great purpose of heart, he's talking about something that's done deliberately, something that's done intentionally. He's talking about something that is, that is 
has become a priority in our lives, not, not just um, first place in our lives, but that to which everything else in our lives bows its knee. So again, he encouraged them. So they, they hear the word of God, they get born again. And so Barnabas now, a, a leader in the church, he goes out on this you know, journey to, to go check these things out, what he's heard. And notice he encouraged them all that with great purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Remember he said, if you abide in my word, if you continue in my word. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, another church leader. If you're not familiar with his story, we'll talk about him as these classes unfold. Verse 26, And when he, Paul had, when he had found Paul, he brought Paul to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year... They assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Wow. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. At least one more time, but for now, one more time. The student is not above his teacher, but if the student allows the teacher to train him perfectly, the student will be just like his teacher. That's Luke chapter 6, verse 40. This is referring to the purpose of discipleship, for the one teaching to be reproduced in the one being taught. Now, these verses are significant for a lot of reasons. We haven't even really dug into yet that this, these people are are hearing the gospel, both Jewish and non-Jewish men and women. That's obviously extremely important. It's a milestone uh, for any non-Jewish person like myself. You know, uh, I'm thankful for the gospel and thankful for people who were led by the Lord to, to preach it to somebody other than those of Jewish nationality. But we also see that the discipleship process has reached its successful end in that Jesus has not just come into these men's and women's lives, but with great purpose of heart, they continue with the Lord. Notice that Paul and Barnabas taught them consistently for about a year. You know, I don't think that's a coincidence either, but at least we have some time frame. There's something about a year. Give God a year. There's just, anyway, we could talk about that more later maybe. Um, But we see that, that Jesus became assimilated in these men and women. This word Christian, when they were first called Christians, they were called Christians by outsiders. This was not something that, that they gave themselves. They, they did not name themselves this. The people who originally started calling these men and women Christians were doing it to make fun of them. They, they had become so much like Jesus that they're like, you, you, you're like that Jewish carpenter that got crucified by the Romans. You know, you're acting like him. You're talking like him. The other thing that I don't know if you've paid attention to yet or not, but I think is one of the most significant parts of this whole story is that all of this took place with Jesus in heaven. That's extremely important. 
Jesus is not here in person, hands-on, teaching these men and women. He's teaching them through members, through leaders in His body. He's teaching them and training them through a man named Paul and a man named Barnabas who are inspired by, led by, called by, gifted by the Holy Spirit to do that. So they're serving these people in their areas of, of gifts and callings, areas that they've been equipped uh, in by God to, to serve uh, these men and women. And we see that the discipleship process reached its intended end to the point that outsiders are referring to and calling these men and women Christ-like, okay, uh, because Christ has become so assimilated into them, or let me say it another way, they've become so similar to Jesus that people who, who don't really understand the Bible and all this are still recognizing that they're like Jesus. Man, that, is, that does something for me right there. Because if it, if it can happen um, with Jesus in heaven and, and the Holy Spirit being the teacher using other people uh, for, for this group in Antioch, then it can happen uh, in my life and in your life, both you and I literally become Christ-like in our lives and practice and ministry, but then we can also be used by the Holy Spirit like Paul and Barnabas to help disciple other men and women. Wow. All right, go with me now to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Matthew, chapter 13. Matthew, chapter 13, and we'll begin at verse number 18. So I want to talk to you just a little bit more about this uncommon commitment that is discipleship. An uncommon commitment that is discipleship. Think for a moment, when Barnabas came and inspired by the Holy Spirit, instructed those people to continue with the Lord with great purpose of heart. And how those people heard those simple instructions these were folks, I don't, I don't know how much they knew about the Old Testament. I don't know how much they knew about God, Jehovah. Uh, they, they weren't Jewish people. They, they weren't raised in a synagogue. They, you know, I, again, exactly what they knew and, and how much they knew about God, quite possibly. And I know this is hard for us here in the United States to, to understand, but there are people alive on planet Earth right now that have never heard the name of Jesus a single time. They don't know anything about it. Um, some folks from our church were, were in a, a missions trip with John Smithwick Ministries, and they were handing out flyers to a, to a crusade event. And there was a picture of, of John Smithwick on the back of it, and someone mentioned something about Jesus. And one of the people who received the flyer pointed to the picture of John Smithwick, a, a, friend, a friend of mine, and they says, is, is this Jesus? They, they, didn't know, they didn't know Jesus from John Smithwick. They, they had no idea who this Jesus is or anything about him. And so, again, that's hard for us to comprehend here in, in, in this nation where there's a church on every other street corner and, and uh, we hear his name spoken seriously and taken in vain and so forth and so on. So when we talk about this uncommon commitment, these people who just meet the Lord, they get born again, and now a leader comes that they respect and they humble themselves and hear what he says. With great purpose of heart, they continue with the Lord. They seriously developed and studied and trained um, for about a year. And the results were uh, amazing. The, the results were, were nothing short of miraculous. Amen. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about this uncommon commitment. Matthew chapter 13, and we have... Uh, 
Other gospel writers recorded this parable. But this is the parable referred to as the parable of the sower. Okay, And I try not to take anything for granted. So when he says sower, he's talking about planting. Uh, not S-E-W-E-R, needle pulling thread, but S-O-W-E-R, a farmer sowing or planting seed. So Matthew 13 and 18, I say that if, if those of you that needed to hear that because you, you thought otherwise. Um, there was a time in my life when I would hear someone teach about uh, taking his yoke, and I heard Y-O-L-K, like the yolk of an egg, and I had no idea what that meant. So uh, don't feel bad if you thought sewing meant uh, stitching fabric together, okay? All right, little levity there for you, okay? Praise God. Let's get back to it. Matthew 13 and 18. It says, Therefore... Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some now, this particular parable is referred to as the master key parable. It's the master key parable because Jesus himself said that if we do not understand this parable, how will we understand any of the others? And so much of what Jesus taught us, he taught us through this mechanism of a parable. Think a comparable Jesus would tell a story about a man who had two sons, about a woman who lost a coin, about a farmer who plants seeds. And he would use things that people could understand and readily connect to, relate to, to then introduce us to wisdom from his world, explain to us and teach us truths from heaven and help us understand them and apply them to our lives here on the earth. And so on this particular day, this master key parable, Jesus talks about a, a man, a farmer, who goes out and plants seed. And we see that as he scattered the seed, the seed landed in different places, and those different places that the seed landed represented different soil conditions. So you've got the place at the end of the row where the tractors turn around that compact the soil, you've got the, the rocky soil, You've got the, uh, the, the soil where the thorns and, and, and briars and weeds grow up around it. Uh, and then you've got the good soil. And in that good soil, we see that the seed uh, produces tremendous harvest, tremendous results. Now, as Jesus explains this parable, he explains that the seed is actually the Word of God. And what we know about the Word of God is that it's an incorruptible seed. When I was uh, younger, helping my dad and my granddads plant their gardens, 
we would plant squash in what they called a hill, a hill of squash, which simply means they would mound up the dirt, and then the top of that hill, they would put three um, squash uh, seeds. And I thought that you just did that because you wanted three squash plants. What they later taught me was that they would plant those three seeds in case one or more of them were a dud, in other words, didn't sprout at all, um, but let's say all three of them sprout, you go back and the one that is the, the healthiest and the most robust, you leave and gently pull out the other two. It was a way of protecting themselves against seed that, for whatever reason, failed to produce a, a plant or a squash plant. Well, when it comes to the seed of God's Word, uh, there's not a dud in the book. Amen. And His words incorruptible, it'll produce the same results that it was sent forth to produce in our lives every single time. And that's nothing but straight up good news right there. So the varying amount of harvest that comes from the Word of God planted in a person's life has nothing to do with the quality of the seed, but it has everything to do with the quality of the soil that that seed is planted in. And so the Word of God is seed, and the soil is men's and women's hearts. So the Word of God planted in the heart of a man, planted in the heart of a woman. And so the condition of that man's or woman's heart, that's the soil condition. And that determines, first of all, whether or not the Word of God produces any results in your life, uh, but even if it does produce results, for how long and how much, okay? So this is so, so, so very important because the Word of God will produce the life of God in you that God created you to live. But if the soil conditions, if our heart conditions aren't right, then the seed won't grow and won't ultimately produce its fruit. So we see then that there were those who heard the word of the kingdom, but when they didn't understand it, the wicked one came and snatched that word away. So this would be in the parable that Jesus told, it would be like seed that was just kind of laying on top of the ground and it made it very easy for the birds to come and, and eat those seeds rather than those seeds take root uh, and grow. Notice that he says, these are ones who do not understand the word. First of all, the devil, the Bible says he comes immediately. Another version of this parable says that, that the devil comes immediately to steal the word. And this may be obvious to you, but let me state it. It is 100% of the word from you that you never hear. That's why I'll say it again. <laughs> Everything God wants to do in you and through you begins with you showing up. But even once you hear the word of God, Satan is still going to try and come and steal that word from you. This is why we can remember a joke we heard in the eighth grade and have a hard time remembering the text of our pastor's sermon from last Sunday. It's because the devil comes to steal the word. We've got to recognize that. And we've got to uh, defend against that. So this is one of the reasons why I 
pray and ask the Lord to help me and try so hard to help people understand the Word. Because if you don't understand the Word, then it's going to be very easy for the devil to steal it from you, even if you hear it. And that's what happened to this first group of people. They're the ones who heard the Word of God, did not understand it, and the devil came and stole it away. The next group of people, these are people who heard the Word of God and they understood it, but it would be like soil that had a lot of rocks in it. And we see that the seed sprouted up quickly, but the Bible says they had no root in themselves. And so without any roots, the first bit of pressure from the sun that is applied to that plant is going to cause that plant to wilt because the plant draws its, its moisture and its nutrients from the root system that it has uh, down in the earth. And so without any root system, it's very easy for uh, this uh, man or woman uh, to quickly turn loose of, if you will, the Word of God. Um, let, me, let me put this uh, back up here. Notice, it's, we find it in verse 21. It says, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. Remember, we talked about enduring sound doctrine, continuing in the Word. This requires effort on our part. The Bible talks about laboring in the Word. Jesus said, your work is to believe on him whom God has sent. Speaking of effort on our part. I wanted to put this back up on the, uh, the monitors. Because I wanted you to see this part. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the Word. Now, these words, tribulation, persecution, it's talking about pressure from the outside. The, the Greek word here is Philipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, Philipsis. I like that word. I just like saying that word. Sometimes, to be honest with you, I'll drive down the road and I'll think about that word and I'll just say it because it makes me smile. Philipsis. We don't have a T-H-L uh, combo in uh, English that I'm aware of. But anyway, it's referring to pressure. So think that in the, in the comparable, you've got a plant that has sprung up quickly, no roots. It's vulnerable. So the sun comes out starts to beat down on that plant, dry it out, because it doesn't have any access to, to any you know, depth of earth, it, it quickly um, withers. So here it says, immediately stumbles. Please notice, please notice, that the pressure comes because of the Word. The pressure comes because of the Word. So that first group of people who heard the Word, didn't understand it, Satan came immediately to steal the Word. Well, if you understand the Word and, and are excited about it, it makes it more challenging for the devil to steal it from you, and so he's going to shift his strategy. Since he couldn't steal it from you and, and separate you from it that way or separate it from your heart that way, he's going to try and, and use circumstances and situations, things around you, to put pressure on you in hopes that you will turn loose of the Word of God and not continue, there's that word again, not follow through on what the Word of God has promised you or what the Word of God is instructing you, all right? Now, 
This next group of folks are folks that obviously understood the word, obviously um, dealt with outside pressure and have continued in the word. So Satan again now is trying to steal the word from this group. And so once again, he adjusts his strategy. So this next group of folks are ones who understood the word. They've held on through the, the, the challenges and the pressures and the circumstances and situations that have contradicted the word in their lives. And they've actually begun to experience the fruit of God's word in their life. They're actually experiencing the difference that, that God's word and God's wisdom and God's ways will make in their life. And so it's like, man, once you ever get to that point, I often tell folks, if you'll, if you'll ever tithe long enough to see the benefit and the reward from it, you'll be a tither for the rest of your life. Taste and see that I'm, I'm good. That's why God says to the, about the tithe, prove me in this. He, he wants you to experience for yourself the difference that it'll make in your life because he knows if you ever taste it and experience it, it'll be very, very difficult for you to ever back away from it after that. So this is where this, this third group of people find themselves and so, what is the strategy the devil used on them? He can't steal the seed. The seed's already sprouted. He can't use pressure to wither the plant because the plant has put down roots and is now producing fruit. So, he's going to try and, and bring what we would think of as weeds. Okay. Now, he received seed among the thorns. Is he who hears the word? And there's this particular passage gives us, um, it gives us two out of the three. Now, when I say two out of the three, I think it's Mark's gospel who includes three different categories of, of weeds. Uh, here we see cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches. The third category is simply the desire for other things. So these are people who receive seed uh, and the word of God's producing fruit in their lives because notice it says, and he becomes unfruitful meaning that this person was producing fruit, the Word of God was producing fruit in their lives. But these three different areas brought in contamination, those things gradually grew up around the Word that was producing results in their lives and choked it out. Deceitfulness of riches, I'm sorry, let me give them an order. Cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, I probably need to make a slide on that at some point. Deceit, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things. Let me, let me give you uh, an example, cares of this world. Cares of this world are just the cares of life. We're going to be talking about, in the service tonight, God's answer to anxiety. Uh, we find it in the Scriptures. He tells us what to do when we're anxious and how to overcome um, anxiety. Uh, in Philippians, the fourth chapter. Don't turn there now. Just stay with me, please. Okay. So, the cares of this world, these, this would be you know, different areas of, of life that can produce stress, that produce worry, can produce trouble. Uh, when he's talking about care here, he's talking about uh, something that, that would cause us anxious care. Merimnau is the word in the original uh, Greek. It's also translated worry in uh, other places. So the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, how many times over the years have I seen people who were all in for the Lord, living by the Word, God producing amazing results in their lives and families? Um, then they start working on Sundays, and are they, in other words, 
they, they start getting more, and you have to be careful when you start getting more, you want more. And so God starts blessing you, your, your finances start growing. Sometimes our finances grow and our expenditures grow even more. And next thing you know, we start chasing a dollar instead of chasing God. And the deceitfulness of riches can very quickly pull you away from the life that God created you to live. Desires for other things. Desires for other things. Um, again, you know, we, we lose interest. We lose our, our focus. Um, we start paying attention uh, to other things. That's been one of my uh, concerns, uh, Pam and myself, just with our family of faith here at Heritage, is you know, during COVID, it's, it's very easy for you know, the, the time and attention that you were giving to the things of God to be directed to other interests and to other things. And if you're not careful, you can lose interest in the things of God uh, by replacing that interest, <laughs> you know, with, with the things of this world. So these are folks who were fruitful, and Satan deceived them into the cares of this life, the deceitfulness, riches, desires for other things, choking out the Word of God. But then that last category, that's you and me, amen? Um, we received the seed on good ground, we, we heard the Word, we understood it, we bear fruit, and that word is continually producing in our lives, 100-fold, 60, and 30. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around 30, 60, 100-fold. And fold and multiplication times, is, is, it's not 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. Um, if, if you take a piece of paper and you fold it in half, that's one fold. Now you've got two. Okay, If you fold it again you've got four. If you fold it again, help me now, you got, I'm looking at a math major here in the room. In other words, it's exponential. Um, every, every time you, you fold it, it's not just, uh, um, you know, adding one to it. If you multiply something times a hundred, um, one times a hundred is a hundred, two times a hundred is two hundred. A hundred fold uh, is a number that takes two lines on a chalkboard to write uh, how large a number this is. But he's just talking about the Word of God making an, a difference in our lives that goes beyond our ability to, to uh, our, our physical brain to comprehend. So I'm, I'm watering this down on purpose just to make the point. Um, 30 times, 60 times, 100 times better. And it's more, it means way more than that, but we're just talking about the improvement that the Word of God will make in your life. Now, I wanted to spend a little time on that for a few reasons. Number one, it's a master key parable, and so very important to our, our fundamental understanding of who God is and how He works in our lives. The kingdom economy, God's economy, is not a buying and selling economy, it's a sowing and reaping economy. And he created you and me to, to plant and harvest. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he'll also reap. And so we need to understand the importance of, um, of sowing and reaping. It's, it's uh, amazing. And if you didn't know any better, you would think I was making it up if I was to tell you that you know, a 60-foot oak tree with a, with a five-foot diameter trunk you know, came out of an acre less than an inch uh, big. Yet we know that's the case, that the power that we see in a seed and then 
God's Word being seed and the power that's in His Word being released like the power that resides in a physical seed are things that we not only need to understand but we'll be building on in the days ahead as we uh, progress uh, through uh, more and more of uh, these classes. The other, I guess, key thing here is to recognize that you know, your heart and your attitude, the attitude of your heart towards the Word of God makes such a, a, a big difference in how the Word of God is able to produce results uh, in uh, your life. But let's go back to the point for this class, or at least the one that we're developing. Discipleship is an uncommon commitment. And so if we go back through these four categories of people, these four conditions of heart, these four attitudes of heart, we see something, I think, that, and, and this is in the interest of me trying to explain something very, very important in a way that any person listening, any person watching can understand it. So I want you to think of it this way. That first group of people who um, did not understand the Word of God and therefore the devil was able to steal it, I want you to think of these as men and women who quit before they understood. Who quit before they understood. See, if you're going to understand some things that God wants you and needs for you to understand, it's going to require some effort. It's going to require some endurance. It's going to require some focus. It's going to require you know, potentially inconveniencing yourself in order to understand the things that Father God wants you to understand. Remember, you have an enemy who is actively, aggressively working against you to try to keep you from understanding these all-important things. So the first... the ways of God, the Word of God, the wisdom of God. It takes a commitment on your part and my part to persist in that, to endure in that, to become established in the Word of God, to put down some roots in the Word of God, for the Word of God to become grafted into you, integrated into you. I sometimes pray this over myself and sometimes pray this over people that I have the privilege and opportunity to serve the Word of God to is that the Word of God would become so much a part of us that it literally alters our personality. That, that it becomes so woven into who we are and the way we see ourselves and the way we see the world around us that it <clears throat> fundamentally changes the way we do life. Those uh, men and women who, who are experiencing that kind of impact from the Word of God are men and women who have put forth the effort, made the commitment necessary, to become established in the Word of God. So, again, you've got those who quit before they understood. You've got those who quit before they became established. The third category, the ones that the weeds grew up around, these are uh, those who quit and never knew they did. Those who quit and never knew they did. I want you to think about that for a moment. <clears throat> 
Um, somebody, I was teaching this years ago, and somebody uh, shouted out from uh, somewhere in the room, a slow fade, a slow fade. And what they meant by that was it, it wasn't something that they just up and walked away from God. It was a gradual, slowly fading away from the life that God created them to live. So you got those who quit before they understood, those who quit before they became established, those who quit and never knew that they did, right? And then anybody want to guess what that final group of men and women are? Those who never quit. Come on now. That's us, right? We're, we're those who never quit. Those who quit before they understood, that's not me. But again, if you're going to understand, it's going to require some effort. It's going to require... Listen to me for a second. Praise God. I'm gonna, let me come back over and look at you for a second. Amen. I think we've already mentioned it once in here, and we'll probably mention it two or three more times uh, in the days ahead. But in John the sixth chapter, Jesus teaches this um, this lesson about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and the uh, the disciples. Uh, I think we talked about it last week. Actually, they uh, the Bible says many of those who were followers, and even those who had had stepped up their commitment to what we would qualify as a disciple. They followed him no more. Man, they was like, this is too much. We're out of here. Later that evening, Jesus asked his inner circle of 12, are you leaving me also? And Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Where else would we go? No, we can't hear what we hear from you from anybody else. Remember, though, this is so important, so important that I may say it again before the night's over and may say it three more times next week. That inner circle of disciples, they did not understand the sermon either. But notice where they were later in the day. They're sitting at the feet of Jesus, humbly waiting for him to explain it to them. So if you're going to grow and develop in the things of God, you're going to have to be willing to endure through things you don't understand. If you already understood everything, then you would not need to be discipled, okay? And the Bible makes it very clear. It's one of my life verses. If any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know it. If you think you know all there is to know about a verse, any verse in the Bible, uh, my heart goes out to you uh, in, in, in pity and sorrow because there is no verse that you know everything about no matter how well you know any single verse or passage in all the Word of God, it's multifaceted. It's multidimensional wisdom is what the Bible says of itself, meaning you can look at it a hundred times and on that hundred and first time see something you've never seen before. So we've got to start becoming uncomfortable. I'm, I'm sorry. We've got to start pushing through when we become uncomfortable with things that doesn't mean we just believe anything and everything that we hear. We obviously need the Holy Spirit to, to bear witness with us. Some of you listening to me right now, you're learning and growing in the things of God for the first time. There are other folks like me raised in church and taught a lot of wonderful things, but also taught a lot of things that were not correct, that, that were inaccurate. I was told that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not for people today, and it absolutely positively 100% is. I'm not, we'll talk about that in the, in the days ahead. So if, if you're among us in these classes and you're hearing things for the first time or you're hearing them in a way you've never heard them before or you're hearing them up in opposition to what you've heard before, 
don't don't get mad at me and you know go binge out on Netflix instead of trying to grow in the in the things of God. Let the Holy Spirit teach you and show you. That's one of the reasons why this is an hour and 40, hour and 45 minute class. It's one of the reasons why we may on one subject look at 10 or 12 different passages, sometimes even more than that on, on, on one word or one subject. It's because I'm wanting you to understand, not my opinion, not some opinion I read in a book, but I'm wanting you to understand what, what God has to say about these things. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every matter, every word be established. So that's why we don't just look at it in one verse. We look at it in multiple verses. But if you're going to understand some things that you don't understand, you're going to have to commit yourself to that. And if you're going to become established in the Word of God, we're talking about a bigger commitment. If you're going to avoid the slow fade and get to a point where you let your foot off the gas and think you've learned enough, then to avoid that, you're, you're going to have to keep, as, as the Apostle Paul said, you're going to have to keep pressing and reaching for the prize to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of you. Now, I offer to you that, and I'm going to put the list back up on the, uh, the monitors. Those who never quit had every opportunity to quit that the other groups had, they just didn't take the opportunity. I, want, I think that's really, really important. Those who never quit, there was a day when they didn't understand either, but they didn't quit. Those who never quit, there was a day when they were not established in the Word of God, but they didn't quit until they were established. Those who never quit, they had opportunities to be deceived by riches. They had cares of life just like everybody else that tried to pull them away and they certainly had at times desires for other things but they recognized that the priorities in their life uh, were not going to be altered uh, by fads and fashions and, and, and things that come and go and uh, are temporary so those who never quit had every opportunity to quit that everyone else had they just didn't take it so when we say discipleship is an uncommon commitment, I just want to remind you tonight that the only way you miss out on God's best for your life is if you quit, is, is, is if you don't go after it, is if you let the devil deceive you into thinking that it's not worth the time and effort. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, I, I, I've got it somewhere in my notes. I wasn't planning on saying it right now, but I feel like that I need to say it. Quote this verse to you, Hebrews 11 and 6. It says this, but without faith it's impossible to please God. For the one that comes to God must believe. That's an absolute word, please hear me, must. Must believe two things. Number one, must believe that God is. Now that's pretty obvious because if you're going to come to God and don't believe that He exists, then why are you coming to a God you don't believe exists? So if you're going to come to God, you must believe that He is. Listen to this though very carefully. Number two, you must believe that God is and you must believe that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You must believe that He is, and you must believe that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. What is He saying there? He's saying as He invites you to come to Him, He's wanting you to, first of all, believe that He is, but then the next thing that's an absolute must is that you must believe 
that any effort you put towards knowing Him, any effort you put towards fulfilling His purpose for your life, any effort you put towards doing life together with Him, any effort you put towards putting that yoke uh, on your shoulders and, and walking alongside Jesus to learn from Him, any of those efforts, diligently seeking God, praise God, what? That He will make it worth your while. He will wildly reward you for those efforts. Now that, I know for some folks, you know, you think, I just, I just don't know about that, Pastor Mark. I mean, it sounds like it's something we ought to do because we ought to do it. Well, sure, it's something we ought to do because we ought to do it. But notice, Father God wants you to understand something much deeper about Him. And that is that any effort you put towards living the life that He created you to live, any effort you put towards uh, knowing Him and becoming established in His Word and being a disciple and allowing Jesus to be assimilated into you and being reproduced in you, that these are things that Father God is so appreciative of and that He will reward you in life. And listen, I don't have all these verses in front of me. We'll get to this in greater detail in the days ahead. But don't just think reward you one day in heaven. The Bible makes it very clear. In heaven, in the life that now is and the life that is to come, both in this life and in the next. Praise God. Now, let's go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Galatians 4 and 19. I'm going to give you another discipleship is statement, okay? Discipleship is statement coming up. Let's go to Galatians 4, 19 because this is where we find the biblical basis for this next statement, okay? Galatians 4 and 19. I've got lots of favorite verses, and this has been uh, a favorite of mine for some time now. Praise God. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is is formed in you. That's Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. If you've turned there in your Bible, you might want to, again, if you don't mark or highlight things in your Bible, that's, that's okay. I'm not trying to get you to do something you don't like to do or not comfortable doing. But if you were ever going to mark a verse, I would ask you to mark that one, um, especially as it relates to discipleship and Father's you know, plan for our lives and, and what He desires to do in us, through us, with us, among us, so forth and so on. All right. So let me give you the statement that goes along with this verse and we'll connect the two together. So again, the verse is, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Here's the statement. Discipleship is a process intended to reveal Christ in us. Discipleship is a process intended to reveal Christ in us. One more time. Discipleship is a process. What's the intent of this process? What is, what is God wanting to do through this process of discipleship? Its, its intent is to reveal Christ in us. All right? Now, when the Apostle Paul says to the church at Galatia, so I'm well aware that probably most of the people watching this right now understand these things, but let me just make sure that we're all on the same page. The book of Galatians is actually a letter that Paul wrote to the church. He addressed it initially to the church at Galatia. That's a place. So therefore, the book of Galatians or the letter to the Galatians. And so 
it's important to recognize that he's writing to the church, which means he's writing to, to, to people who have already received salvation, who've already been born again. So in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he says, my little children, because he viewed himself as a spiritual father to them, and they viewed him as a spiritual father uh, to them. And so this is why he refers to them as his little children. He says, for whom I labor in birth again. So if you're doing something again, it's obvious that it's something that you've done in the past. So when he says, I labor in birth again, he's talking about something that he's now doing a second time that he had previously done. So this time, though, he says, I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. So the first time that the Apostle Paul labored among these people, he went to them as an apostle. He went to them as one that you know, was coming to tell them about Jesus, to present um, Jesus to them. We got some issues with one of our monitors over here. I don't know what's up with that. Praise God. Um, I'm just thankful it's not on the uh, on the other side over here. I need to take a picture of the of our setup this year, and and so all of you can see it that that uh, join us online. But anyway, um, are we still we still got monitor on this side over here? Okay, I, I'm losing it on this screen, but as long as we got it there, that's good. All right, thank you all for being patient with me as we try to multitask here. Amen. I am anointed. Come on now. I am anointed to multitask. Praise God. All right. So he initially went to them. Remember a while ago when I said that about people on earth who've never heard the name of Jesus? He goes to these people and he tells them about Jesus for the first time. And these people get born again. And he establishes this church here. And he trains and teaches these people. And then trains and raises up a pastor to oversee these people. And then, of course, he goes on to other places and does this time and time again. And so when he says, I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, he's not talking about laboring in birth again for them to get saved again, for them to, to, to receive Jesus again. They've already received Jesus. They've already been born again. Now he says, I'm laboring, travailing in birth, this time for Christ to be formed in you, for Christ to be formed in you. Now, this is, again, a very important passage because of that word formed. That word formed there is used here, and I believe, 90% sure, it's the only place we find it used in the New Testament. It's okay if it's used somewhere else, but it's very unique. In other words, it's not a commonly used word. Let's just leave it at that for now. And it is referring to the work of an artisan who would sculpt a statue or would produce some type of image through the work of his, his or her hands. So when he says, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, he's talking about discipleship here. He's talking about them learning to see themselves as their heavenly father sees them. He's talking about the image that they have of themselves becoming the image of Jesus himself, for them to begin to see themselves 
as someone who's been born of the Spirit, as someone who's been born of the Word of God, as someone who has become one with God, till Christ be formed in you. Now, here is a very important way of understanding what this means. It literally, he's saying, I am working and laboring among you until the inward reality of the new birth becomes an outward expression of life. Until the inward reality of the new birth becomes an outward expression of life. Wow. Now, I know we've said this in different forms, representing Jesus, so forth and so on. Here, though, is a statement that I pray impacts your heart and mind and becomes one of your battle cries as a disciple of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The inward reality of the new birth, he's, he's talking about what became true about you the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. See, what we will see in Scripture is that when you were born again, you were made right before God in the eyes of God something that you were given as a gift, not because you've earned it or deserved it or have been good enough long enough to, to receive that recognition, but you were given the gift of righteousness. The Bible says it this way, he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, he was made sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So the inward reality of the new birth is that if you've been born again, you are just as right before God in the eyes of God as Jesus himself because you've been given his right standing with God as a gift. Now that's the inward reality. It may not yet be your outward expression of life. Do you see what I'm talking about here? What's true about you in, in your born again spirit, the real you, may not yet be evident in the way you live your life on a daily basis. So when Paul says, I labored among you, so that you could receive the Lord Jesus and become born again men and women. He says, now I'm laboring among you until Christ be formed in you, until you see yourself as you are seen and known in heaven, until, you, until the way you think about your own life is, is, lines up with um, the, 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 the word of God, the truth of God, and, and what Father God has said about you. So I'm, I'm going to put that back on the monitors until the inward reality, come on now, until the inward reality of the new birth becomes an outward expression of life. The inward reality of the new birth becoming outward expression of life, it's right up there, and notice how it's related to finding out who you became the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. Remember, discipleship is finding out who you became the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so this is just another way, really, of saying that, but this is the verse for Galatians 4.19 um, he's talking about that inward reality um, of, of, of Jesus imprinted on your born-again spirit becoming an image uh, imprinted on your mind, emotions, and will and then being reflected in the way you live your daily life. Praise God. All right, I think we've got time for at least one more. All right, so um, the next thing I want you to understand about discipleship is that not only is discipleship an uncommon commitment, not only is uh, discipleship process intended to reveal Christ in us, but discipleship is an attitude. Discipleship is 
an attitude. <sighs> Praise God. It's not just something you do, but it's an attitude of the heart. It's more than just going through the motions. It's more than just complying to, you know, some type of program or, uh, and I'm, listen, I have no problem with programs, discipleship programs, recovery programs, uh, educational programs, all of that. If, if, it's, if it's good and honors God, then, then I'm, I'm all for it. It's not that. But if we're not careful, we can substitute compliance to some type of regimen, some type of routine, and our hearts be very far from what God really desires to do in us and through us. When Jesus said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard that, I mean, their jaws dropped because they're like, those guys are the epitome of righteousness. So if if, if, if we've got to be more righteous than them, then there's no way we'll ever make it into heaven. There's no way we'll ever enter the kingdom of God. But see, their righteousness was all outward. It was, it was all um, something that they were trying to put on a show for the world, for people to look at and go, wow, you know, that dude is so righteous. But remember what Jesus said. He said on the outside, they're like an above-ground tomb that's painted beautifully with a new fresh white coat of paint. But on the inside of that tomb, there's still dead men's bones in there. So if we're not careful, discipleship can become just adherence to some type of program, some type of regimen. So, for instance, uh, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed. You know the truth and truth will make you free. So a characteristic of discipleship is continuing the word. That's the uncommon commitment we've been talking about. So does that mean just stick your nose in the Bible and you'll be a disciple. No, because if you're just going to comply, uh, you can't be a disciple without the Word of God, but if it becomes something you are trying to accomplish only in your fleshly efforts instead of letting God work on the inside of you. How about this when Jesus said, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They were saying all the right things, and in some cases, even doing all the right things, at least on the outside, but inwardly their hearts were far from what Father God had for them and um, intended for them. So there is a certain attitude of the heart that also is characteristic of a um, disciple. Now, let's do this. And this really helped me when the Lord um, showed me this. And I think it was Dr. Miles Monroe first introduced me to this concept. Uh, it's, it's really um, a concept that can apply to a whole lot of different uh, areas of life. And it's this idea of aptitude versus attitude. And I'm trying to over-pronounce here, so if you're listening and not watching uh, and reading the monitor, that you will understand what I'm saying. Aptitude, A-P-T, Aptitude versus attitude, A-T-T, all right? Aptitude versus attitude. So when we talk about the aptitude of, uh, of an individual, we're talking about what that individual is, is capable of. And if you recall in, in school, we would be given aptitude tests. 
And the aptitude test was not really a test of the student, but it's a test of the teacher and the educational system that that student is connected with to see how much that student has learned. So an aptitude test, you may go and you know, get hired on or be a candidate for a job and they want to give you an aptitude test because they, they want to see how much you know about, uh, already know about a given subject. So aptitude has to do with inherent ability. It, it, it's something that, that you, you know, already know and have the potential of, of, of doing or becoming. But then we have this thing called attitude. And attitude is one of the more challenging words for us to define because it has to do with the condition of, of our heart, the way we look at things, the way that we view things. But let me, let me see if I can explain it this way. And this usually gets a few smiles, if, if not chuckles out of people. Um, have you ever, and I'm sure nobody listening to me right now, but maybe you know somebody, maybe somebody <laughs> that you grew up with that had the aptitude to be a straight A student but had the attitude of a C student, C minus student, D plus student. In other words, they didn't, they didn't make all A's, not because they didn't have the aptitude to do it, not because they didn't have uh, the intelligence to do it. They, they didn't make the straight A's because they did not have the attitude to go with the aptitude. They had the mind and the ability and the gift uh, to, to, to do it, but they didn't have the focus and the, and the, and the right frame of, of mind and commitment and all these other things that goes along with this thing called um, discipleship. So when we talk about discipleship as an attitude, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every, every born-again believer has the uh, ability to, uh, to, to be a disciple and to have Jesus. Uh, he's already living in you, so the inward reality of the new birth becoming outward expression of life, uh, the hard part's already done. Jesus did that for us. Um, so it's one thing to have the aptitude for it, but it's another thing altogether to have the attitude. So how important is attitude? I've heard somebody say that attitude is everything. I don't, I don't know if it's everything, but it, it sure is important. Um, let me try to explain to you how important. The uh, first point of Jesus' first pu public sermon was attitude. <laughs> so that ought to tell us something right there. Um, he was wanting us to understand the kinds of attitudes that would be necessary to receive uh, from him uh, what he came uh, to, uh, to do for us and what he came to uh, to give to us, because Jesus knew that if our focus and attention and minds were in one direction, that, um, that we could potentially miss everything that he came to do for us. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that defining attitude is, at least for me, it's very challenging we all know a good one when we see one, a good attitude when we see a good attitude, and we all know a bad attitude when we see a bad attitude. But actually capturing in a very clever, pithy, 
you know, six words or less uh, definition for attitude, uh, it, it, it's somewhat challenging. But let me, let me kind of go off script in my efforts over the years to, to do that. I found the use of the word attitude in a way that I didn't know about that helped me communicate, I think, better what I mean by attitude. And that's this idea that the attitude of a plane, I'll put it up on the screen, the attitude of a plane in the sky is the orientation of the plane in respect to a fixed point of reference. So the attitude of the plane in the sky is the orientation of the plane in respect to a fixed point of reference. So, um, you know, when you talk about the attitude of an airplane, you're talking about how that airplane is positioned based upon, because the airplane's in the, if it's, if, it's, if it's airborne, it's moving. If the plane stops moving forward, guess what happens? <laughs> it drops, right? So the, the airplane is, is in a state of movement, just like our lives are in a state of movement. But the attitude of the plane is determined by the position of that plane, the orientation of that plane, as, as in respect to the horizon, in respect to Farmer Brown's red barn, in respect to uh, the, that, that yonder mountain range, um, is, is the, uh, it's, it's tragic, and, and I, I hate to even mention it here, but it's, it's one that at least a lot of people in my generation remember, was when uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. crashed his plane because he was flying in fog and didn't know if he was going up, if he was flying level, or if he was flying uh, straight down, and unfortunately he was flying almost straight down and flew the plane uh, into the ocean. So notice the attitude of the plane was off in reference to its orientation of the fixed uh, point of the ocean surface. So why, why am I talking about this? When we talk about our attitude, we're talking about our orientation towards a fixed point of reference. And so how about this? What's your attitude towards God's Word? What's your attitude towards church attendance? What's your attitude towards discipleship? You see, in other words, how, how are you positioned as far as your life? Because remember, your life's in constant motion. How are, how are you positioned uh, in, in, in reference to um, these uh, fixed points in our life? I hope that is helping you or making sense to you. So, when we talk about Jesus' first public sermon, he talked about attitude, but then we also know that on top of that, he preached a message of repentance. And this is particularly interesting because the word repent actually means a new condition of mind. The word repent actually means a new condition of mind. Now, what we will explore together in the days ahead is the, uh, the, the value of the renewing of the mind uh, as born-again believers. But when I, you know, mentioned earlier, raised in church, and when an altar call for repentance was given, I understood it to mean uh, stop doing what you're doing. The idea is you're headed in one direction, and that's a wrong direction. You need to turn and, uh, and go in the other direction. It's actually a 180, uh, do a 180. Uh, every now and then the preacher would get excited and he would tell us to do a 360. Um, if, if you understand 
what a 360 is, that's a complete circle. So if you're headed north and you do a 360, you're still headed north. So it's a 180, all right? If you've headed north and do a 180, then you're headed back again, all right? So repent, though, means something completely different from what I understood it to mean for many years of my life. The word repent is a Greek compound word that's made up of two words, meta, changing condition, nous, mind. So the word repent means a new condition of mind. So when Jesus says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's talking about things that have changed from the way they've always been. But if, if our attitude remains, you know, how do I say this? Praise God. So let's say you're flying along in a plane and, um, and you know that there's a mountain over to your right and you're going to, you know, you want to make sure you miss that mountain, right? Well, if the mountain has been moved and it's not where it used to be, your attitude's got to change to adjust that, to that. And that's, that's probably the lamest way I've ever tried to explain this. But Jesus came to change everything. And if people continued with the same attitude in life towards God and towards the things of God that they had before Jesus came and changed everything, they're going to miss completely, they're going to miss out completely on what he came to do. Now, I heard um, Brother Keith Moore was, uh, was actually watching uh, an interview, and it was a, a non-believer, uh, I think maybe not Larry King or something like that, and if, if, if I'm wrong on that, it's okay, but I'm not saying Larry King or whoever's a non-believer, but it wasn't, it wasn't on Christian television, but it was a secular uh, interview-type program, and they were interviewing a very well-known um, a pastor uh, in, in our country here in the United States. And, you know, my heart goes out. I, if, if you're a pastor and you get invited onto one of those shows, pray about that because so many times they're, they're not bringing you on there because they want you to be able to share Jesus with their audience. They're bringing you to those places because they're trying to embarrass you or they're trying to make you sound so, you know, they want to ask you questions about homosexuality. They want to ask you you know, all, all these different things. So make sure you're being led by the Lord before you do that. And it was kind of one of those gotcha moments, you know, where they were trying to set this pastor up. And so Brother Keith Moore, because he loves and knows this, this pastor, he was watching it. And, and so the interviewer said that uh, Jesus' message was a message of love and acceptance because, you know, he's, he's trying to, um, you know, corner this pastor uh, into... Um, you know, saying something about homosexuality or, the, you know, these kinds of things. And so he says, uh, but wait a second, wasn't Jesus's message a message of love and acceptance? And so that pastor said, well, of course, Jesus's message was a message of, of, of love and acceptance. Um, now, follow me very carefully, because I'm telling you this, it, this was not my experience. It was Brother Keith Moore's experience, but I'm so thankful that he had the experience and he shared it because it sure spoke powerfully to me. Because if you'd have asked me prior to that moment if Jesus' message was a message of love and acceptance, um, I, would have, I would have said yes. And, and I could have used Bible verses to support that. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't love and accept people. But Jesus' message was not a message of love and acceptance so much as it was a message of love and repentance. And so when Brother Keith Moore watched that interview, 
he said later, you know, he's praying for his brother because that guy was, you know, kind of rough on him, and the interviewer was was obviously trying to, to, uh, you know, catch him, trip him up in what he was saying and that sort of thing. So he's just praying for him, and it's never a pleasant experience if you've ever been in a situation similar to that. But Brother Keith Moore said, you know, I just couldn't quite shake that. He said something didn't set well with me when this whole love and acceptance thing, and. And so he said the Lord spoke to him in his inward man. He said, I didn't preach love and acceptance. I preached love and repentance. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't accept people, but I'm talking about the message of Jesus. Jesus' message was one of love and change, love and repent, love and don't keep thinking the way you've always thought um, because we got to think about these things differently now um, because things are a-changing. Is this making sense to you? This is very, very, very important. So we see then that um, our attitude towards God, he's that, he's that fixed position, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Amen. <laughs> he, he loved you before you were ever formed in your mother's womb. Uh, he sang over you while you slept last night. There's nothing you can do right now to make him love you any more or any less than he loves you right now. He loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus with. That's never going to change. What does change, though, is people's attitude towards him, how they're living their life as it relates to the fixed position of an eternal God who created you for a specific purpose, calling, and destiny. So our attitude towards God, our attitude towards his word, our attitude towards discipleship, our attitude... So when I say discipleship is an attitude, we've, we've got to properly respect... Um, you know, who we are in relationship to who God is. We're going to be talking about that a little bit in the sermon tonight here at Heritage. Um, you know, that's worship. Worship in its purest form is knowing who you are in relationship to who God is, okay? And he's the potter, we're the clay. He's the creator, we're the creation. Um, and so again, notice all of these things, it, it goes to attitude. The fear of God, for instance, is an attitude. It's, it's, it's not an emotion, that's where a lot of people get confused about the fear of God and they think it was only for the Old Testament. No, no, no. The Bible talks about Jesus' fear of God on this earth as a man. Um, so don't, don't misunderstand me here, but it's not an emotion where you go get in the corner and hide from God because you're afraid of Him. The fear of God is an attitude of, of respect. It's, it's recognizing that we're not even qualified to call the shots uh, for our own life, but even if we were, um, we, should, we should honor Him with, with that right. So... We talk about discipleship as an attitude. I don't just mean, you know, a disciple holds their nose at a certain angle in the air. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. A disciple is, is someone who uh, properly respects uh, God and his purposes and his plans. Um, it's, it has to do with humility. It has to do with thankfulness. It, it has to do with, um, you know, just a, a singular focus, setting your mind. Uh, giving God uh, the place that he uh, deserves um, in uh, your life. Praise God. Well, I'm out of time uh, for this class. I'm certainly not out of stuff to say, but we will um, pick it up here next week, uh, whether we're here. If we're in heaven, we probably will be focused on some other things if the rapture was to take place between now and then. But I appreciate you tuning in uh, this evening. I'm so thankful for those who are here with me in the room, and most of all, I'm thankful for the Holy Word of God 
He is alive and well and working among us, and the Holy Spirit of God, who is also alive and well and working among us. I thank you uh, for um, your commitment to uh, this now three classes that we have uh, experienced together. I appreciate your excitement. I appreciate you hanging in there um, for the first three now and uh, encourage you uh, that with great purpose of heart, uh, you continue with the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this time together, Lord, um, in your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and for the things that he has illuminated in so many different people's lives and hearts. Lord, things that he has spoken and whispered into people's uh, ears, Lord, that I didn't even say tonight, but something that he, he took, something that I said and, and spoke it uh, uh, in a different way or prompted uh, something different in, in the heart and mind of other people that are listening. And so I thank you for that, Father. I thank you that your word does not return void, but it accomplishes the thing that you send it forth to accomplish. It prospers in the areas that you send it forth to, to prosper in. And so we thank you, Lord, that, that we are not the forgetful hearer. Father, that we uh, do not quit before we understand. We do not quit before we are established. We do not quit and never know that we did. But, Father, we are among those who never quit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God. Well, you're loved. If nobody's told you that today, if you're with somebody, tell them good things coming. And um, if you're not, just tell the Holy Spirit in the car with you there that, uh, or the, the office or wherever you may be. Good things coming, and we will uh, see you again next week. If not